Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast about the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm your host, Daniel Link, and with me tonight, I have a very special guest, my friend and fellow horror enthusiast, Cameron Suey. Cameron, why don't you introduce yourself there? Uh, hey, um, I am Cameron Suey. Uh, I am a writer and a uh, narrative designer for games uh, with a focus and a love of horror. Definite love and focus on horror. And actually, that's how I discovered this guy about five, six years ago. Stumbled across his short stories in literally the middle of the night, which was a terrible decision, uh, given the effect of some of them on me. Uh, but yeah, what are like a couple of the games you've worked on, Cam? Uh, so most recently, I spent uh, two years of my life uh, working on Rise of the Tomb Raider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then before that, um, there was a fallow time filled with cell phone games, which we won't <laughs> talk about. Uh, and then prior to that, I was on uh, the LucasArts <laughs> development teams working on uh, Force Unleashed and Force Unleashed 2. And because I will give some credit where Cam is being too modest to, like Cam and the rest of the Rise of the Tomb Raider team, they took home a Writers Guild of America award for their work on that game. And I feel that's worth noting here. Uh, just, you know, getting people's propers out of the way. Uh, oh, but, I always like when other people mention it so I don't have to. So I appreciate that. That's great. Uh, at least I could do. And especially for you coming on here tonight. So we can talk about a very good, at least in my opinion, recent horror movie called The Black Coat's Daughter. It is yes. Written, yes. It is written and directed by Osgood Perkins, who maybe has my favorite name of a current living director, though he's currently going by Oz Perkins. Like either way, like him and his brother, who's the composer on the film, his name is Elvis Perkins. So those parents, they, they have good writer's appreciation for names. And, yeah. Well, and and you know who his dad is, right? Anthony Perkins? Anthony Perkins. Yeah, psycho. Oh my goodness. This so explains he, why he was listed as, like, had a role as kid Norman Bates in one of those psycho sequels. Everything's just kind of falling into place right now. I had no idea that Anthony Perkins was his dad. Yeah, he's, it's a whole uh, dynasty of, of creepy dudes. In the good way. The good way of creepy dudes. Perfect. So, Black Hood's Daughter, it came out originally in 2015, though it started getting wider release earlier this year. Uh, so it was originally titled February, and I'm much happier that they went with this current title, The Black Coat's Daughter. It also, <laughs> yeah, I think that really good horror tends to have the in the title. I, I've just, it's maybe it's not like an inherent quality, it's just something I've been noticing lately. The Witch, The Babadook, The Black Coat's Daughter, but I'm digressing. So it's just, it's so much more evocative than February. Yeah, like February, it's like, oh, you're the kind of shitty month, aren't you? Like, you're not as like archetypally winter as January. You're just starting to slip in the spring. You're you're just the wet, awful month. Uh, you know, all due apologies to people born in February. Uh, but sum up this story. It's basically two stories running in parallel. And the first focusing on two girls who go to a private girls Catholic boarding school somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, they are Kat, a freshman, who is played by Kiernan Shipka, who most people recognize as Sally Draper in Mad Men. I recognize her mostly as the voice of, voice of Janora in The Legend of Korra. The other girl is Rose, uh, placed by Lucy Boynton. Uh, she's like a senior 
kind of more, not world weary, more worldly than the kind of reserved freshman cat. The two of them have to stay over at their school, the Bramford School, uh, for the winter break because their parents didn't show up for differing reasons. Uh, Rose has misled her parents deliberately because she is basically trying to work with the fact that she may be pregnant and Kat simply can't get in touch with her parents in a way that is between their lack of contact and some dour dreams she's been having. It's putting her just a bit at ease, ill at ease. And the parallel story to that, we follow Joan, played by Emma Roberts, who anyone uh, familiar with uh, American Horror Story will recognize, uh, an enigmatic drifter who is picked up by an older couple heading toward Cat and Rose's school. And we cut between these two stories of this very slow burn of a movie, but as with the best slow burns in horror, I'd say like the payoff is worth it. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Um, I like slow burn is is the only style of horror that really works for me anymore. And I think like from the first sequence in this movie, it has such this like heavy sense of dread. Yes, uh, that is just so well built. That first dream that she has about holding someone's hand who she thinks is her father, but you never really see his face. Yeah. Uh, And it's just so unsettling from the first scene. And like, there's really no follow through in that dream until later on the movie. And it's basically just starting off on this really ambiguous, but as you said, like dread laden note that the film just layers, just keeps building up on paranoia, uh, not discontent, like disquiet as these two girls are just living, not basically, not alone. Like there are two nuns, like sisters at this school who are taking care of them over the week. Rose, she really doesn't care to be there. She's only there because she's trying to work this stuff out with her and her boyfriend and this possible pregnancy. Uh, she is resentful of basically having to look after freshman Cat. Cat is, she's a sad girl. She's a sad, lonely girl. And you get that right from the get-go and... Yeah. And and she's the, it's, she's sad and lonely, but there's this, like, there's this sense that she's terrified of something that you're not quite aware of yet. Um, and I think one of the things that's so fascinating about the movie to me is how patient it is Mm -hmm. because you sort of start to revisit a lot of those early scenes where Kat just seems like a mopey freshman. You revisit it with a slightly different viewpoint later and you realize that she's actually, uh, incredibly terrified yes. of what's going on in her head. And I think like that patience to delay a payoff for an hour uh, throughout the movie is, yes. is, is bizarre to see in a first time director. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's so confident. Yeah. This was Perkins first feature film that he directed. He previously wrote a film that Brian Cranston was in, but yeah, at this point he's just directed two movies and, as with a lot of like new horror cinema movies that come out the last few years, just a hell of a lot of solid debuts, like this one especially. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a golden time. Yeah, that's like what I'm trying to focus on with this cast. Like, oh, I'm going to get here while the getting's good because like my point that I'm trying to make is that this is like maybe the strongest decade for like original innovative horror since the 1970s. Uh, yeah, I I would absolutely agree with that that thesis statement. Anyways, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, besides my grand posturing about this, uh, you mentioned something about revisiting, and that is what this movie does very well. And that they will like not Reservoir Dogs thing, but they they will show one part of the story, and then they will revisit those earlier scenes from another character's perspective much later, just adding so much more information. Because like a key part of this movie is 
these characters like keeping information from each other. Just like they have their own reasons for that. Like Rose obviously doesn't want to open about the fact that she may be pregnant. And I guess later on in this, we will kind of lift the spoilers a little bit. Just kind of like pull back that curtain a bit. But for now, I just want to talk about like the key performances in this because Kieran Shipka, like having really not watched more than 15 minutes of an episode of Bad Men, she is really fucking good in this. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't think I've. I've actually never seen Mad Men. Yeah. Um, please don't send angry emails. Uh, but she's. I think what's so interesting about her performance is that um, when you revisit it from those mm-hmm. multiple points of view, mm-hmm. um, the sort of neutrality sounds like it has a value judgment on it. But the yeah. the ambig- the ambiguity of her performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, works for both your initial assumptions, which are wrong, yes. um, and then later on for what you understand is actually going on behind her eyes. Um, and it's a really nuanced performance. She goes to like definite like shades of character as this movie goes on. Like starting out, she's very quiet. She's reserved. She's like the definition of shy girl. And as this goes on, you see these traits like flit into her that are more like spitefulness a kind of casual cruelty and contempt that like she conveys with like no broad gestures like no like loud say exorcist style diatribes she just gets us across with like like a callous little glance or like something she mutters like an aside and like for someone who is like i think she's still a teenager like excellent work there kieran yeah yeah it's i think the a movie like this, especially a slow burn character mm. horror movie, sort of lives and dies on these sort of these sort of performances that are uh, nuanced and believable. And she she has this this sort of ebb and flow between you know where she starts and you know spoilers free still yeah. where she ends up that feels like a very natural progression, mm-hmm. um, but also just has this huge range of of eeriness to it. Yeah. The eeriness, like even right from the start, she's doing just, I guess like a generally good piano singing performance, but it's just also like the most sad and lonely one possible. Just like at the outset, you just want to give this girl a hug. At the ending of the movie, you just want to kind of run fleeing in terror <laughs> from her. Um, yeah. And contrasting her with that is Lucy Boynton as Rose. Lucy Boynton, yeah. who is English, I had no idea because her American accent is so spot on. She just plays this great kind of queen bee senior high schooler uh, who just does not want to be there. She's there for her own personal reasons, but like she really doesn't want to babysit this weird kid and sneaking out, hanging out with her boyfriend, who Canadian listeners of this show will note looks a hell of a lot like 1999 era Matthew Good of Matthew Good Band, which as a big fan of that band was like really kind of off-putting to see this dude. Uh, But I digress again. We go to this other parallel story, Emma Roberts as Joan, who again, like withheld information is a key trait of this movie. We're just kind of piecing things together about Joan. Like she's not really giving hints about herself. It's just stuff we see through very brief and occasionally violent flashbacks. And she's like making her way across upstate New York. And she's picked up by an older couple played by Lauren Hawley of Dumb and Dumber fame and James Remar, who my roommate Sam Martell once dismissively referred to as dollar store Eric Roberts, which is just, just the 
coldest burn possible. And is yeah. actually it's very funny considering that he is playing opposite uh Emma Roberts, who's Eric Roberts' actual daughter. Uh oh, I didn't I didn't realize that family connection. See, I always think of him as Dexter's dad. Oh well, yeah. Well, James Remar is not related to Emma Roberts, but it's more like Eric right, Roberts. Right, right. Yeah. But still, like, yeah, Dexter's dad, he's one of the guys in The Warriors. And uh, so he was originally cast as Hicks in Aliens, and there's even shot a few scenes of him. But then he, like many other actors, he pissed off James Cameron. He got fired. There's still a couple of shots of Remar in Alien, like shot from behind. Oh, God, I, I didn't know that. Uh, can't That's rec- no probably one- a wise casting switch, though. Yeah, no one... Yeah, Michael Bean is great in The Lost Treasure. Uh, anyways, getting back to why this movie works so well, one of the ways I've like described the general feeling of dread and often like my own like personal experience of anxiety, it's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And a lot of this yes. movie is waiting for that other shoe to drop. Just like you know something bad is going to happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know what form it's going to take. It's just that general unease and that lack of information. It's that ultimate kind of fear of the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I think uh, I actually am just going back to thinking the first mm-hmm. time I saw it and I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I think one of the things I, I really love in, pu- in uh, movies is um, sort of puzzle box narratives. Yes. Where it really requires um, your active participation. Um, yeah. And I think you're you're waiting for all these data points that a traditional movie might just you know, hand to you for free. Mm-hmm. It's difficult nowadays because I, as much as I try to force myself not to do this, I am the dude who's constantly looking at his phone. So for a lot of first times with like horror movies, I like, okay, turn the dang phone off, put it in a completely different room of the house. And I just give myself over to this. And if you have that level of patience, if you can just give yourself over to this movie for an hour and a half and just keep an eye on all these little details and watch them come together well, just being slowly drowning in this growing sense of horror of, oh, really bad shit is going to happen. And if we can, I guess if we can start lifting, like pulling away the curtain a bit, dropping a few spoilers, it, it gets bad. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the most. And rapidly once the shoe drops. Yes. Like probably since The Exorcist, like William Friedkin's The Exorcist, one of the best portrayals of demonic possession in a movie, namely like this being who is, let's just say it's literal Satan taken over this poor girl. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I actually, I I think it's almost, it's almost played as ambiguous, which I think is, is the, like the sharpest choice given how ambiguous the the rest of the movie is. Um, But she clearly believes that what's going on with her is literal Satan. Um, yeah. And portrayed in a way that reminds you of literal Satan with the horns, but is maybe one of the most eerie uh, sort of demonic images I've seen on film because it's basically like a black cloud. It's like a shadow. It's almost the, like, like a shadow yeah, on the walls. He's kind of fuzzy. If I, I look closely the last time, he's, he's like a fuzzy Satan. Uh, but like, yeah, it's almost like rabbit ears, how long the like the long pointy horns are. Yeah, still very effective. And you know, while Regan Regan McNeil in The Exorcist is just like twisting her head around and throwing up on people, uh, possessed cat is does horrible things with a knife that I wasn't expected to be freaked out by by a movie. But the 
no, she goes on a stabbing spree. And the reason yeah, why yeah. it's so effective is I think Osgood Perkins, he did not go over top of it. There's no spurting blood. There's no great gushing streams of it or close-up shots. It's just a very blunt portrayal of stabbing that this is like a terrible thing to say of a person, but I almost get the impression like, does does this guy go on live leak and like watch videos of actual stabbings? <laughs> like it's not the first. Yeah, they're, they're, it's yeah. naturalistic, um, which is an also a terrible thing to say about stabbing. He's not the only director I've gotten that impression from like kind of keeping topical. I recently watched Blade Runner 2049 with directed by Denis Villeneuve. And while not in Blade Runner 2049, though it is still a brutal movie at times, Denis Villeneuve's earlier work, can get like very, its portrayal of violence is very blunt and realistic in the same way. And so I'm not used to seeing that as much in a horror movie where there's nothing stylized about this. This is just a yeah. girl who is possessed or maybe is having like a psychotic break, just going to town with a knife. And it was a way that like, oh, I feel genuinely sick watching this, but I didn't feel like it was exploitative in any way because one, they had earned this through the very slow, very patient buildup. Yeah. And like, two, like, they weren't like, oh, this isn't like a very theatrical possession thing. This is like pure evil happening. And whether or not that is a, there is a psychological source of that evil or it's like an elemental spiritual source for it, it's still gut wrenching to watch because, like, at the heart of it, like, Cat is, seems to be like a very good person who is going through some right. bad shit. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that makes that um, the stabbing sequence yeah. so um, sort of gut gut punching is that uh, he plays off of these sort of uh, stereotypes of what <laughs> you expect a girl in a boarding school to be. Cat's the shy girl. Yes, uh, Rose is the like the cool hip girl. So you have you have these sort of expectations <laughs> that he definitely is sort of twisting and and needling and, and interrogating along the way. But yeah. once Cat has her break. Um, that really turns into violence. It's still, you know, she's not she's not the villain that you expect to do this. She's not, um, you know, a masked man in the dark. Yeah. She is this nice young girl you've been following, and who could uh, have foreseeably been uh, a victim or the, even a not a. She is the protagonist, but she yeah. could have been a a hero in it until that happens. She is very. You said victim, and that is like kind of true because they're like you said like it's ambiguous. There are multiple ways to view this movie. Like you could view this, like this is a tale of supernatural possession, or you could view this as a tale of just like a psychological break. And it's a rare case in which both of those interpretations are like equally supported by the text and are equally Mm -hmm. valid. Yeah. Like a really cool thing that happens like after the climactic event of this movie, which is an awful stabbing spree is like, she is like taken in by the police and she is like brought to some mental institution and the priest at the Catholic school who she appeared to have like a good relationship with comes in and performs an exorcism in a way that like works. It presumably casts the devil out or like casts out her psychological concept of Satan. But in a weird twist on the possession genre, she feels utterly abandoned yeah, she sort of watches the the shadow of the devil fade away, and she's uh, calling out to him to not go. Yes, I, I think there's a there's a really beautiful theme throughout all this movie of everybody seeking these connections, mm-hmm. um, and so she's 
since we're fully in spoiler territory, yeah, go it's down. heavily implied that her her father is is her actual father has been killed in that car accident that she dreams about. I don't I don't remember if it's actually said outright. Uh, well, um, the school principal, like the headmaster, does like suddenly come back in the middle of the week, and it's implied that he learned about the car crash and he was coming to tell Cat about it. Right. Um, but so th- I think that's maybe the strongest sense that there is something truly supernatural going on yes. is that it's also implied that the devil tells Kat that her father is dead um, yes. in a way, in a time when she couldn't know. And so she sort of looks to the devil to like fill this father figure mm-hmm. um, that she's lost, which is really kind of a, this, this creepy shift. You know, there's, um, and I, this is it's one of those things where you go back and look at the movie and you're right when you talk about it, the ambiguity being multiple interpretations mm-hmm. supported by the text, which reminds me of one of my favorite horror films, Session 9, which yes. has the exact same sort of uh, mental illness versus demonic possession um, ambiguity that mm-hmm. really either one works really well. There's the sequence where Rose is trying to freak Cat out and she talks about the nuns at the school being devil worshippers. Yes, and which is in the context of when you see it, it's like, well, mean, popular girl being, you know, cruel to the young, uh, scared freshman. Uh, and then later that night, Rose hears a weird noise and goes downstairs and sees a figure in the place where she says that the nurses worship Satan, which presumably was uh, a fabrication. Yeah. She sees this figure, you know, prostrating themselves in front of the flame and it's uh, and it's cat. It, um, if I could and just like it took me till after I saw it. Oh, go ahead, good. If I could just be honest here, like I th- think I mentioned this in my original live tweet of the movie. That scene of Cat very kind of rapidly bowing in front of the furnace really fucked me up. That was just like an image that really stuck with me. They haven't briefly in the trailer, but I had completely forgotten about it. Mechanical way Kiernan Shipka is moving in that scene is very unnatural. Yes, yeah. And this movie is full of those sort of really sort of sudden images that aren't inherently, you know, scary or grotesque on their own, but have this weird sort of resonance. Um, the thing that occurred to me after watching it is that Kat, in her first sort of uh, dealings with the devil, is here's that story about the nuns worshiping the devil. And instead of being scared by it, that gives her hope. And it's a way that she's reaching out to try to make that connection. So it's interesting how it's totally flipped once you sort of think about it in the context of all that you learn by the end. Yeah, and especially when you come back to that scene later and you see it from Kat's perspective, she is like actively um, at least visualizing or seeing Satan in that very scene. So it's either like Rose is feeding her the psychosis or it's Satan just looming over there. It's like, oh yeah, you know what to do. Yeah, (laughs) right here. Yeah. Uh, So have we talked about the fact uh, the parallel storylines, what they actually end up being yet. No. Are we going to spoil that too? Let's just um, let's rip the tablecloth off. Let's go. Okay. So the, the you learn throughout the course of the film that these two parallel storylines are actually not happening simultaneously, yes. um, but are separated by seven or eight years. And that Joan, this girl who's coming out of the psych ward and at the bus station, mm-hmm. is actually Cat after having gone on her killing spree, yeah. after being shot by a police officer, and spending time uh, in a mental institution. And coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, the people that she's been picked up by are Rose's parents. And it's unclear whether she knows that they're mm-hmm. Rose's parents until she sees a photograph, but they clearly don't know who she is. She kind of recreates her original murders from the school nine years previous on the parents in a very similarly brutal scene 
oh, it's just like, oh, can you can you pull your car over to the side of the road? Oh, yeah, sure. And then <laughs> did you see that coming at that point that she was going to like lunge out with that? Had you already made that connection that I, I think that I knew that something was really, really wrong. Yeah. Um, but the the quickness of it, the you know, the sort of mm-hmm. intentionality that she has of it is it's unnerving, but it also mirrors her the sort of quickness and intentionality intentionality of her murders to begin with. One thing I think distinguishes the second series of murders in that movie is that at that point, like there isn't any like if there is like demonic possession to begin with, there isn't any at that point. But like, yes, yeah, yeah. The Joan goes through oh, it. God. She takes the heads to the school to that same furnace room where she brought like three heads nine years previous. But Satan doesn't come back. And then at that point, yeah, it, that's that's the most terrifying part for me is that like that's that's the connection after all these years that she's still seeking, even though that satanic figure hasn't been a part of her life since the exorcism. It is scary for obvious reasons, but it's just a very sad ending. And the way, that, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, it's a possessy with abandonment issues. It's like, yeah, it's her crying in the snow because her her dad has left her forever. Yeah. Uh, dad being Satan. Yeah. It's like a sharp contrast to the ending of The Exorcist, where the two priests died and everyone went through a hell of a lot. But it looks like Regan is going to be okay for the seeable future. It's just a gut wrenching ending, like this. You didn't need to commit those original murders in the first place, girl, but like just doing them again, it just have a sense of like desperation of just like wanting this connection, however horrible might be to come back in her life. Ugh. Yeah. And so uh, on, <clears throat> on that connection thing, one of, one of the other things in, in that, in that same sort of trough of unbearable sadness yes. is um, the dad, James Remar and the wife who obviously are mourning their lost daughter, Rose, that you start to realize, um, it's heavily implied that uh, Bill, the dad, sees something in Cat slash Emma yes. that reminds him of his daughter. Yes, um, and he keeps saying this. You know, you know this. This was meant to happen, mm-hmm. and that's that. It, seems, it mirrors her sort of needing a connection yeah. uh, to Satan. And then, so briefly, the mom, Linda, uh, Lauren, Holly, uh, and Emma are in the car mm-hmm. when the dad is out of the car, mm-hmm. and the mom just has this brutal thing where she's like, "Hey." He said, "You remind her, you of of our daughter, yeah. right?" And she goes, "I don't, I don't see that. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing special about you. Like, it's like the one really honest moment in that in that sequence is that she is she doesn't have that fantasy of trying to reach out yeah. and make this connection to something that's totally lost. So, what's kind of weird about that is like, like, well, I can kind of see like how I can see Emma Roberts as like an older version of Kiernan Shipka, who's like grown up." But there's also she also has a bit of similarity to Lucy Boynton as Rose, and mm-hmm. and at first, like I wasn't sure. I was just confused by that. But I'm almost wondering, kind of playing around with the notion of a very guilty cat, like starting to take on, however consciously or subconsciously, take on traits of the woman she murdered. Like it's yeah. the way she carries herself, the way like she'll turn her head, more breathy voice that she takes on it's like oh is this like oh she's like adopting rose traits and it's very off-putting and you can actually see how rose's dad sees that in her because it's yeah deliberate and i mean this this person that he thinks is a stranger absolutely has a connection to his daughter in the worst that, way that he's picking up on yeah he's yeah yep but he's picking up on something for the wrongest possible reason and mm. i think they tip their hand that the second storyline is in the in the future yes 
uh, before they tip who she is. And I think they do play off the ambiguity of which of these girls survives and comes out the other end, albeit, you know, scarred and sad. Yeah. Um, so I think some of that, that ambiguity about who she is, Mm -hmm. is really serves a dual purpose. Yeah. I think like the, the kind of mic drop moment is when you see like the picture and it's, of like a picture of their daughter and it's of the one of Rose that is taken early on in the movie. And it's like, okay, wait, how does this all fit together? How does Joan fit into this? And yeah, it's a a nice little puzzle box of the movie and you're puzzling it out as you're watching it for the first time though, you know, apologies to anyone going into this fresh, uh, but maybe you'll forget about it. Who knows? Repressed memories are a thing. If you try hard enough, (laughs) All in all, like if I were to kind of sum up the overall vibe of this movie, it's like be patient, you know, pay attention, look for the little cues, you know, take in the performances as much as you take in like the bits of silence and dread that build in between the dialogue and prepare yourself for how that movie is going to end because it is not shy yeah, yeah. By, and from depicting like very realistic violence. The payoff is just so worth it for that buildup. It's just... It's so well orchestrated to that point. Yeah, here we are just gushing about like, listen, this brutal, unflinching violence is going to be worth it. Trust us on it. I think. Yeah. A, well, we're all here for horror movies. Like at a point, it's it's not like we're desensitized to this. Like I, again, I was like shocked by it. Now there's like a kind of movie I'm really into nowadays, and like it has a very similar structure to The Witch and act to one I was just writing about tonight, Honeymoon, which is like a lot of slow buildup and layering on the paranoia and then just erupting in a bloodbath or just a singularly violent act at the end in a way that's, you know, it's not like slasher movies where it's like, okay, someone's dying every 10 minutes. It's like, people are going to die, but it's going to do right by them in a weird way. We're going to make you sympathize, sympathize with these people. They're going to feel like real people for you. And we're not just going to cast them off. Like there's some random slasher victim. And we're yeah. going to make yeah. you feel for them as if you were watching someone die in real life. And yeah, like that's what makes this movie work. It's, it's got a lot of heart. Uh, I think one of the things that, um, that I've noticed about the horror movies that I like and the horror movies that sort of, sort of roll off my back and don't really have an impact is that one of the most important things for me in horror is that it's a function of empathy. Yes. Um, so the more you care about these characters, the more it's terrifying because you give a shit yeah Uh, and that's why i think sort of the traditional slasher film never really makes much of a mark for me i mean they can be fun and and cheesy Mm -hmm. and campy but you know i can tell instantly if a director is telegraphing that like oh this guy's a shithead and i'm gonna kill him at the end of act two um and you know that's that's not as frightening um if that sort of stuff is telegraphed but this movie has a lot of empathy for everyone involved, even yeah. the people who are doing the worst things. Especially for the people doing the worst things, or the person yeah. doing the worst things. I'm just thinking of like a slasher film that actually does this well is a recent slasher film, and that is The Strangers. What's interesting about like the slashers involved don't kill or like directly attack the main characters until like the end of the movie before that it's just all toying and manipulation and wearing down the morale bit by bit so it's a way that has like the thrill of a slasher movie but you're the characters don't feel disposable yeah yeah Yeah. exactly um i will i will say this for black coat's daughter is it probably is the only film in which a character yells hail satan that doesn't feel uh, cheesy or goofy like that is a 
an, a, a very powerful moment that she's turning herself over completely to that. Oh, it sends chills down my spine. Yeah. I think we've been ruined on the concept of like Satan, the satanic imagery, largely due to overzealous members of the Christian church, Christian education. Like I grew up in Catholic school and, you know, well, we didn't dwell on Satan that much. Like at some point, like imagery like Baphomet, the horned goat god, it just becomes like a cliche. And this- and yeah, It's pedestrian at a certain point. Yeah, it's just something that edgy kids do. Like, oh, pentagrams, black candles, all that. But this movie and uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch has brought back that imagery in a very powerful, elemental way. And I think like part of the reason both of those movies are so effective at relaying it is like neither of those movies seem to be a world in which a god exists. So it is just this <laughs> alternative. It's this horrific- Or it's very debatable. Yeah, or if like- that god might be a bastard, as in the case of like the arguably Calvinist god of the witch. So like- yeah, I, I, a lot of times demonic horror and devil horror, especially the the '80s movies that really uh, traffic in that, like that is that's just such a hard sell for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a Catholic or Christian background, but you know I grew up in a predominantly Christian culture. Yeah, um, and those things have such repetition that they mm-hmm. have no no real power on their own. And so it's, I think a lot of people feel like it's, it's shorthand to say like, boy, the demons are scary. Yeah. And like, to me, that's, it's lazy. Um, and because this movie spends so much time, uh, in this ambiguous, ambiguous, creepy place before really landing hard right in the middle of her yelling, hail Satan, holding a severed head. Um, (laughs) it's, it like it builds to that it earns that moment yeah. so well the note on that severed head so you kind of see <laughs> you see the lead up of her doing that but then like you know cuts to like the cop with the rifle going downstairs into the furnace room and finding cat there you don't listen in horror you see severed heads a lot it comes with the territory but this movie doesn't throw it in your face it's just like okay you're seeing the furnace you're seeing cat standing there you're seeing oh what are these three objects in front of the furnace silhouetted oh (laughs) god it lets you figure that out on yourself by yourself so it makes it all the more horrifying because it puts you in the shoes of that poor cop there uh yeah this is a great movie overall prepare for some heavy stuff if you go into it again it does not shy away from a realistic depiction of violence but if you have the patience for it if you have that gumption so to speak absolutely sit that one through. And it's not the only good horror movie by Osgood Perkins because he more recently put out I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which is on Netflix. Yeah, a very, very different movie, but um, has that same sort of heavy dread um, and puzzle solving as you go through it. Yeah, it's a ghost story, much mis- much less malicious than this movie. Also featuring Lucy Boynton. She plays one iteration of the ghost. Yeah, so that's on Netflix and The Black Coat Start, if you want to check that out. Uh, that's for rental on YouTube. And you can also find that on Shudder, the premier horror streaming service. So like Netflix, but for scary Ooh, movies. Which I just subscribed to. It's great. Like I'm not doing advertising for it yet, uh, but <laughs> I've been discovering a lot of stuff I never would have come across like otherwise. But yeah, speaking of stuff like you never would have come across in your normal searches, uh, my recommendation for a short video this week, a short free movie is AM 1200. So AM 1200, like at first I thought it was like, wait, like 12 o'clock, 1200 AM. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but no, it's actually like a radio station thing. Uh, so it is written and directed by David Pryor. 
You can find it on Vimeo. I'm going to include a link in the show notes. It's absolutely free. It's starring Eric Lang, uh, John Billingsley, who Trekkies will know as Dr. Phlox in Star Trek Enterprise. Maybe they're still trying to forget Enterprise. You know, you do you. And beloved character actor, Twin Peaks favorite of mine, Ray Wise. You want to sum up AM1200 for a bit? You introduced me to it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I first saw AM1200, I think probably maybe just a year or two after it came mm-hmm. out. Um, I was sort of uh, going through my horror renaissance where I was starting yeah. to watch a lot more horror and starting to write a lot more horror. And I quickly sort of burned out the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started going online to the same places that I was finding, you know, weird creepypasta and short fiction and finding weird lists of recommendations. And this is one of those ones that kept popping up on there. Yes. Um, and this is way way back in the, the old days of, I think, about 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shortly after it came out. Um, and I ended up having to buy a DVD from the website. <laughs> uh, it was the only way I could get a copy of it. Um, I'm so glad I did and I still have it. Um, but nice. so it's, it's a short film and David Pryor is someone who's worked with, uh, David Fincher almost exclusively in the past. Yeah. Um, I think as a, a first assistant director. Yeah. And I was looking at his IMDb um, credits and he does like a lot of the behind the scenes documentary stuff that end up on like the Blu-ray special features of his movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it's a, a story about a guy who is fleeing, uh, a crime that he's committed and it's sort of intercut between, um, him fleeing on the road and him sort of remembering the steps that led up to him committing this white collar crime mm-hmm. that eventually someone else is um, accused of and the person who's accused of it commits suicide. So yes. he has this this sort of crushing sense of guilt um, that he didn't intend. It's it, So he's, he's fleeing something that you sort of build up on. Mm-hmm. And as he's going through the mountains, he starts to hear on the AM band this uh call for help from a radio station that's just repeating over and over again from radio station kbal cabal yeah i picked um, up on that the first from time Mount Zaffon. Yeah. yeah um and so he drives up to this seemingly abandoned radio station and um uh i'm not, I'm not gonna spoil too much but there's there's something horrific happening inside the radio station yeah it's something that has a sway over the person who's desperately broadcasting he wants help Helping him isn't going to help anybody else. It's just going to make things worse. And yeah, yeah, it's it, it plays off of this notion of um, of free will that I think uh, is always yeah. very resonant for me in the things that yes. are truly scary. Um, so I, I've watched the I've watched it so many times, but I, I watched it with the director's commentary a oh. couple times as well, which is fascinating. And one of the things that the director says is that he is he was less influenced by horror movies of the time mm-hmm. um which we weren't we weren't into the golden age yet yes and he said he was more influenced by the horror ambiance of video games oh um and i think he specifically mentioned silent hill at some point i can see that which yeah it makes a lot of sense to me especially when he's approaching the the abandoned radio station there's this moment that is like I'm a, I don't like jump scares. Um, it's, you can, you can make me jump by yelling boo as long as you want, but that, that, that doesn't accomplish anything in my goal of being spooked out. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, there's what I would call a reverse jump scare in this, (laughs) Yes, in that he's, you know, he's walking through the woods and all of a sudden the sound stops, like all the birds stop, all the, all the bugs stop. And it's just this uncanny silence that is so creepy in that moment. Mm I, I really get the sense that, you know, that the sort of ambience that you have to create in a horror game because you have a player running over the place and you can't really 
control your your moments. Yes. Um, that sort of dreadful ambience he was he really did a great job with in this movie. Yes. Before you mentioned that he took influence in video games, I was actually expecting you to say like old radio plays because I kind of got a vibe from that with like the radio station aspect of it. You can almost like imagine this being narrated like on an old like Mercury Theater show. Oh, no one's here in this radio station. Oh, there's someone that seems to be chained up over yeah, there. Yeah, it does have that sort of old-timey, uh, like, mystery vibe to it, mm-hmm. especially until the sort of revelation of what is going on, which is not... The first time I saw it, that really sort of shocked me because that was not where I was expecting it to go. Um, yes. And, you know, speaking of movies with unpleasant descript- you know, depictions of violence, yep. by the end of this, um, the, the main character uh, loses his free will and is compelled... <laughs> to commit a an extended act of essentially butchery um, that is very uncomfortable to watch in that same sort of not stylized sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the most terrifying moment in this movie for me is that, you know, he's he loses his free will. He's compelled by this uh, horrid outside force. And in the moment of the butchery, when they first puts the saw to the body, you can see him trying one last time to resist. Yes. And there's like an electric sound, like a really strong radio broadcast Mm -hmm. that just pushes him back into track and he goes for it. Yes. And then it's, it's so unsettling to see that last little gasp of his free will inside. Watching this person's like ability to choose die out in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Another neat little cameo in this movie. Uh, not the, radio host for AM 1200, but when he comes across on the radio is Charles Flesher, who animation fans will recognize as the voice of that wacky Roger Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, he was- Oh, holy cow. <laughs> yes. And have you seen Zodiac? Yes. Yeah. He's the uh, he's the guy where he goes to see if he can get the guy to recognize the handwriting on the poster. The guy who says, well, actually, that's my handwriting. Yes. Hey, want to come down in my basement where most California houses don't have basements? He's also uh, like the sleep uh, researcher scientist in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. So Charles Flesher just keeps popping up in these little horror and roles and just happens to have this major role in a family-oriented, though still slightly mature, half-animated flick. Uh, I could make a pretty strong uh, argument that uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a horror movie hidden underneath as, all of that. As I get older, like that, yes, that becomes much clearer. Another similarity to The Black Coat's Daughter, they are both filmed in Canada while passing themselves off as being in the States. Black Coat's, <laughs> yeah, Black Coat's Daughter was filmed like a 35-minute drive from where I live in Ottawa in Kemptville, Ontario. And while I don't know exactly where AM1200 was filmed – I know it was filmed in Canada because like one of the first shots of what is presumably California, there is a Toronto Dominion bank logo. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone's getting a tax credit right there. Yeah. Yeah. And just my last note for this show, uh, I recommend like a piece of short fiction. And this week, I'm going to recommend when I stumbled across back in 2010. Yeah, fall of 2010. It's a series of interconnected blogs called the Dianea House. <gasps> yes. Yes. Uh, I forget who recommended it to me like back then. I don't think you and I had started talking yet. Uh, but the I recommend it to anyone that'll talk to me for more than five minutes a lot of times. Yeah, and you know, I say like interconnected series of blogs. 
it's not hard to follow. It's like it's direct linear links to one another. And it's basically like people recollecting this house that keeps popping up throughout the United States. And that's like an important to note. It is not a consistent house. And you and I, we both big fans of Mark said Daniel Levski's House of Leaves. And oh, yeah. so we like the idea of impossible houses that have a will of their own. Dynia House like deals with this self-aware construct of a building uh, that keeps luring people into it like a Venus flytrap. And I'm going to include the link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, you know who wrote that, right? Dynia House? No. Oh, oh boy. I get to tell you, Eric Heiserer, who recently won the award for writing or who recently got uh, all the acclaims for writing The Arrival. No way! Yes, that's one of his first things that he did. He tried pitching Dianiah House as a movie, um, as one of his first screenplays. Oh! He's a friend of a friend of a friend, so that's that's how I first heard about Dianiah House, as it was handed off to me uh, as, as the work of this screenwriter friend. Huh! Well, okay, that explains why both gave me a very similar sense of dread. Okay, you know, we won't get into the story here, but one of the famous short new horror fiction stories is uh, Candle Cove, which I stumbled across in the middle of the night like several years ago. And it took me years to realize that was written by webcomics magnate, so to speak, Chris Straub, who apart apart from being a really funny guy is also a very capable horror writer, as you can see in his comic Brood Hollow. Absolutely. So yeah, two movies, uh, short fiction for you. Two of those are free. Longer movie, Black Coat's Daughter, is fairly usable, accessible, and it's not too cheap to rent it. I mean, it is cheap to rent it. Oh my goodness. I want people to see this movie, not deter it from him. Uh, but I would just really like to thank you for coming on for this, Cam. Uh, you're always a very insightful- Oh, God, my pleasure. Yeah. yeah very insightful voice for horror. And uh, I am also going to link Cam's site, the Joseph K stories in the show notes here, because- you know, that's how I stumbled across this guy back in 2010, 2010, 2011, reading very scary stories on his blog. And I want some other people to experience it as well. And you can kind of see that stuff and hints of it in Rise of the Tomb Raider. At least I personally think oh, so. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of horror on the periphery wherever anyone was not paying attention to what I was doing. Yeah. Anyways, so thank you again for coming on tonight, Cam. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And once again, you know, it gets too scary. Don't be afraid to tap out. Hope you have a nice evening.